Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to my website and clicking donate. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. Today, we continue our look at every single year of Canada's existence. We've actually reached our 30th episode of this because we're hitting 1897. We've almost closed out the 19th century, and this is a year that would see the Klondike Gold Rush, some important births, especially a future Prime Minister, and some notable deaths. So let's get right to it. Notable Events On January 29th, the Victorian Order of Nurses would be founded in Ottawa. The creation of this organization dates back to the previous year when Lady Aberdeen, who was the wife of Governor General Lord Aberdeen, came to Vancouver and heard the stories of women and children in remote areas of the country who were often left alone as their husbands traveled large distances in order to obtain medical help. She then spoke with the National Council for Women in Halifax and asked to create an order of visiting nurses in the country. On February 10th of this year, Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier would host an inauguration to formally create the organization. The organization continues to operate to this day, and it is the largest single national home care organization in Canada, with a staff of 7,000, who are supported by 14,000 volunteers. For helping to found the organization, Lady Aberdeen would become the first woman to receive an honorary degree in Canada. On February 2nd, Clara Brett Martin would become the first woman to practice law in the British Empire. In 1891, she had submitted a petition to the Law Society of Upper Canada to permit her to become a student, but it was rejected with the society saying only men could be admitted to the practice of law. In 1892, women were permitted to be solicitors, and in 1893, Martin began to article with the Toronto firm of Mullock, Miller, Crowther, and Montgomery, but she was treated very poorly there. In 1897, she earned her law degree and would officially enter into partnership at a law firm. On May 24th, Félix Gabriel Marchand would become the new Premier of Quebec. First elected to the Quebec Legislature in 1867, he would serve until his death on September 25, 1900. As Premier, serving until his death in 1900, he would attempt to create a Ministry of Education as all education in the province was in the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. It would actually not be until 1964 that a Ministry of Education would be created in the province. On the same day that Marchand became Premier, the Lion of Belfort sculpture would be unveiled in Montreal. The statue is a reclining British Imperial Lion that faces towards France and the United Kingdom. The Lion is in repose, calm and alert, indicating that the city is safe. On October 1st, Alexander Warburg would become the Premier of Prince Edward Island. He had first been elected to the legislature in 1891 and would become premier when Frederick Peters resigned and moved to British Columbia. Warburton would serve very briefly until August 1st, 1898, when he resigned to take a judicial appointment. One interesting aspect of Warburton was that before entering politics, he pushed to beautify Charlottetown, which included planting 800 trees, many of which still stand to this day. On October 7th, with the introduction of responsible government in the Northwest Territories, Frederick Haltain would become the Premier of the Territory. He would remain in charge until 1905 when Alberta and Saskatchewan became provinces. 
Despite pushing to create the provinces, he was denied premiership because he was a conservative and Wilfrid Laurier wanted a liberal premier. On October 29th, Henry Emerson became premier of New Brunswick, replacing James Mitchell. Also serving as attorney general at the time, his government attempted to promote tourism and wheat farming in the province, as well as the development of the oil and gas industry. He also introduced legislation to grant women the right to vote, but it was defeated, and he would serve until 1900 when he left to become a Liberal MP in the House of Commons. Also this year, the first Canadian movie was filmed. Made by James Freer and released in 1898, it is now lost to time, but it was exhibited in the United Kingdom as a promotion by the CPR to bring in immigration to the country. The film consists of a series of short scenes that included trains arriving, people working in fields, and footage of Thomas Greenway, the Premier of Manitoba, stooking grain on his farm. The Klondike Gold Rush In my episode on 1896 in Canada, the Klondike Gold Rush was just starting, but was still quite small. That was all about to change in 1897 when things kicked off in a big way as news spread of the discovery of gold. It took some time for news to reach the wider world through the winter of 1896-97, but on July 15, 1897, the first prospectors from the Klondike arrived in San Francisco and two days later in Seattle, bringing with them huge amounts of gold. The press reported that the gold was worth $1.1 million, or about $1 billion today. Amazingly, this was actually an underestimate of the actual amount that came in. Not surprisingly, people quickly began to flock to the gold fields of the Yukon. Between 1897 and 1898, 100,000 people would try to reach the Klondike, with 30,000 to 40,000 actually making it. The reason for this huge influx is partly because of the economic recession in the United States, and many people were unemployed and dealing with poverty. The promises of riches in the Yukon was just too much to ignore for some. I would like to do a longer episode on the Klondike that will go way into more detail, but I'm going to talk a bit about the gold rush here. The lure of making money in the Klondike, or just getting to the Klondike, was just too much of an incentive for many people. William Wood, the mayor of Seattle, actually resigned and formed a company to transport prospectors to the Klondike and made a good amount of money. This is because there were several routes to the Klondike, but the gold could only be reached by the Yukon River. Getting to the Klondike was not exactly easy with the terrible cold in the winters, hot and short summers, impassable rivers, and mountainous terrain. Knowing that there was going to be a huge influx of prospectors, the Canadian government implemented rules that required anyone entering the Yukon to have a year's supply of food, along with tools, camping equipment, and other essentials. In all, each prospector was moving about one ton of weight with them. I want to look at the various routes that were used in the Klondike, especially those in 1897. First, you had the all-water route, which went from Seattle to the Alaska coast. From St. Michael at the Yukon River Delta, it was possible to take a riverboat all the way to Dawson. With speed and no overland travel, it was the route that was much easier than other routes. It was also expensive. At the start of the stampede, tickets for this route were $150 or $4,000 today, but by the winter the cost was $1,000 or $27,000 today. In 1897, 1,800 prospectors went this route, but most were stuck along the river when the river froze in October. Only 43 of the 1,800 reached the Klondike before winter, and 35 had to return because they threw away most of their equipment en route. The Skagway route was used by most prospectors. 
Their ships would land at Dia and Skagway, at the head of the Lynn Canal, at the end of the Inside Passage. And from there, they would travel up the mountain ranges into the Yukon, and then down into the river network. Camps were sprung up along the route for prospectors to eat and sleep at. At first, you could go from Seattle to Dia for about $40 or $1,100 today. But by the winter, steamships were not even releasing their prices because they were increasing them on a daily basis. If a prospector landed at Skagway, they could take the White Pass Trail, later called the Dead Horse Trail because of the huge number of horses who died en route. The trail was a terrible route and it was closed in late 1897. Those who landed at Dia took the Chilkoot Trail, which went up the Chilkoot Pass, and 22,000 prospectors went over the pass during the gold rush. Due to the need to take so much food and equipment, the cold and the steepness of the slope, it often took a prospector an entire day to get to the top of the slope, and often they had to make numerous trips. By December of 1897, a tramway was set up that could take freight up at a cost of 8 to 30 cents a pound, or $2 to $8 today a pound. Once over the pass and at the Yukon River, they could take the 800-kilometer journey along the river to Dawson. Due to the people using boats that were not worthy of being on the water, and after the death of hundreds of people on the river, the Northwest Mounted Police introduced safety rules, boat inspections, and the banning of women and children from going through the rapids. All boats had to have a licensed pilot as well. There were also the all-Canadian routes, one of which ran from British Columbia, and three which started in Edmonton. But most were barely trails at all, and of the 1,600 prospectors who took the three routes out of Edmonton, only 685 arrived in Dawson, and it took them 18 months to make the journey. So what of the people who made it to the Klondike to be prospectors? Well, of the 30,000 to 40,000 who actually reached Dawson City, 15,000 to 20,000 actually became prospectors. Of those, 4,000 struck gold, and only a few hundred actually became rich. I will go into greater detail in my upcoming episode on the gold rush, but for now, we will leave the prospectors here and continue our look at 1897 in Canada. Notable Births there was a very important birth this year, and I will get to that in its own section. But first, let's look at some of the most important Canadians born this year. On January 23rd, one of the most unique and important Canadians during the Second World War was born. William Stevenson, later known as Intrepid, was born in Winnipeg and would leave school at a young age and then enlist in the First World War in 1916. He would join the Royal Flying Corps in 1917, and scored 12 victories as a flying ace before he was shot down and crashed behind enemy lines on July 28, 1918. Captured by the Germans, he was held as a prisoner of war until he escaped in October of 1918. By the end of the war, he was a captain and had received the Military Cross and the Distinguished Flying Cross. During the interwar years, he returned to Manitoba and created a system for transmitting photographic images via wireless. This would earn him $12 million a year in today's funds off the royalties. He then took that money and invested in movies, automobile construction, cement companies, and more. By April of 1936, thanks to his business connections, he was able to provide information to Winston Churchill that the Nazi government was building its armed forces up. On June 21, 1940, he would be sent to the United States by Winston Churchill to establish the British Security Coordination, with the goal of pushing the American public in favor of entering the war and to investigate any enemy activities. 
he would become close friends with President Roosevelt and recommended his friend William Donovan be put in charge of the U.S. intelligence services. Donovan would found the OSS as a result, which became the CIA in 1947. Through all of his intelligence work across the world throughout the war, he worked without a salary and paid hundreds of people, mostly Canadian women, out of his own pocket. He would also set up Camp X, a secret training school for covert agents located in Whitby, Ontario. It would train between 500 and 2,000 British, Canadian, and American covert operators between 1941 and 1945. Due to his impact on the Second World War, Stevenson was given the rare distinction for a Canadian of being knighted, which was personally requested by Churchill. In 1946, he received the Medal for Merit from President Truman, the first non-American honoured. In 1979, he was awarded the Order of Canada. Several buildings, streets, and statues exist in Canada to honour Stevenson. Possibly the biggest impact was his influence on a man named Ian Fleming, who would create a character named James Bond. Fleming would say, James Bond is a highly romanticized version of a true spy. The real thing is William Stevenson. On September 23rd, Walter Pidgeon was born in St. John, New Brunswick. After attending the University of New Brunswick and studying law and drama, he would serve in the First World War and then move to Boston to work as a banker. Disliking the work of a banker, he started to act on stage, making his Broadway debut in 1925 and appearing in silent films throughout the decade. After some popular films, he went back to Broadway, and by the time he returned to Hollywood in 1935, he was only appearing in secondary roles. That changed in 1941 when he starred in How Green Was My Valley. In 1942, he starred in Mrs. Miniver and earned his first Oscar nomination for Best Actor, followed by his second nomination for Madame Curie in 1943. From 1952 to 1957, he served as the president of the Screen Actors Guild and would receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960. In 1975, he received the Screen Actors Guild Life Achievement Award and he would pass away in 1984 at the age of 87. This is a clip of Pigeon performing in Madame Curie with Gris Garson in 1943. That's something to be proud of. Uh, I thought perhaps uh, you might like to have a copy. Oh, I would very much. Well, then, it, it's yours. It's yours, mademoiselle. Oh, thank you. Uh, not at all. the book to you, mademoiselle, on the flyleaf. I believe that's the usual procedure. I'm very flattered. Uh, not at all. Not at all. On September 29th, Graham Towers was born in Montreal. He would attend McGill University and during the Second World War served as the chairman of the Foreign Exchange Control Board and the chair of the National War Finance Committee. He was a proponent for the creation of a Bank of Canada and would achieve that and be the first governor of the Bank of Canada from 1934 to 1954. 
1969, he was awarded the Order of Canada, and he would pass away in 1975 at the age of 78. Lester B. Pearson I am in the process of creating a new podcast called From John to Justin that looks at every single Prime Minister in Canada's history. On that show, I will go into much more detail on Lester B. Pearson, but we will do a relatively shallow dive into this fascinating man here. Pearson was born on April 23rd in Newtonbrook, Ontario, and he would go on to have a massive impact on Canada. Pearson was the son of a Methodist parson, and he would spend his childhood moving from one location to another until he enrolled to study history at the University of Toronto. While studying, the First World War erupted, and he quickly enlisted in the Canadian Army Medical Corps, shipping to Greece in 1915 to join the Allied armies in their fight against the Bulgarians. Unfortunately, his military career ended when a London bus hit him, sending him home. Pearson would graduate from the University of Toronto in 1919, but he didn't know where his future career would take him. He would try law and business, and he did earn a fellowship to Oxford, but he settled on teaching history at the University of Toronto while also coaching tennis and football. Eventually, with a family to care for, he realized his professor's salary was not enough and he would join the Department of External Affairs. In 1928, he'd become one of the most important workers in the department, and Deputy Minister O.D. Skelton began to notice him. In 1935, he would be sent as the first secretary in the Canadian High Commission in London, and seeing the move towards war firsthand, he realized how important it was to form a collective defense in the face of aggression. After the war was over, he would find himself the Canadian ambassador to the United States, and he attended the founding conference of the United Nations at San Francisco in 1945. One year later, he was called to the home of William Lyon Mackenzie King to become the Deputy Minister of External Affairs. In 1948, he became the Minister of External Affairs and was elected to the House of Commons. As Minister, he would be instrumental in Canada joining NATO in 1949 as he was strongly in favour of a Western self-defence organisation that he hoped would keep the Soviet Union at bay. He would also help lead Canada into the Korean War, and in 1952 he was the President of the UN General Assembly. His goal was to find solutions to the Korean War, but the Americans felt that he was too inclined to compromise. In 1956, he would become instrumental in creating a UN peacekeeping force, which would be first used to reduce the tensions over the Suez Crisis. He was able to ease the British and French out of Egypt, and for his work, he would become the first, and so far, only Canadian to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Upon his awarding in 1957, the Nobel Committee stated that he had literally saved the world, likely preventing a nuclear Third World War. CBC was on hand for Pearson winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Your Majesty... The Royal Highness, its Chairman, Your Excellencies, members of the committee, ladies and gentlemen. May I begin by thanking you, Mr. Chairman, for your very kind and generous words. I regret that my education was not sufficient for me to follow them in your own language, sir, but there were two words which I recognize Lester Pearson, which seemed to me to come up too often. <laughs> Though I realized that, that might be difficult to avoid in the circumstances. 
I'm very conscious of the fact this morning that I received an honor cannot fail to arouse deep emotion in the heart of the recipient. My sense of pride and pleasure on this occasion is increased by the presence, the gracious presence here of His Majesty and Her Royal Highness, and by the fact, sir, that you have been able to preside over this occasion. I realize also that I share this honor with many friends and colleagues who have worked with me for the promotion of peace and good understanding between people. And I'm grateful for the opportunity, the special opportunity that I have been given to participate in that work as a representative of my country, Canada, whose people have, I think, shown their devotion in war and in peace to the ideal of peace. The great Ibsen had one of his characters in the play, The Emperor and the Galileans, say, there are three empires. First, there is the empire which is, was founded on the tree of knowledge. Then there is the empire founded on the tree of the cross. The third is still a secret empire which will be founded on the tree of knowledge and the tree of the cross Things continued to look up for Pearson in his career, despite an election lost by the Liberal Party to Diefenbaker and his Conservatives. In 1958, Pearson would become the leader of the Liberal Party, serving as the leader of the opposition. Things did not get off to a great start after Diefenbaker was able to guide his party to the biggest win in Canadian election history, leaving Pearson with the task of rebuilding the Liberal Party. He would succeed in this, helping lead the Liberals to the 1962 general election when they took 100 seats, far above the 49 they had before. One year later, the Diefenbaker government collapsed, and the Liberals were able to form a minority government with 128 seats. Lester B. Pearson was now the Prime Minister of Canada. This clip comes from April 8, 1963, when Pearson became Prime Minister. Well, Marvin, we've just been informed that the national leader of the Liberal Party, Mr. Lester B. Pearson, is standing by in uh, Liberal headquarters in the Chateau Laurier Hotel in Ottawa. So now let's go to Ottawa and Mr. Pearson. In terms, that is, of a final result. It is an unfinished election at the present moment, in the sense that it is not yet clear whether any party will have a clear majority in the House of Commons or not. But the only party that can secure that majority, of course, is the Liberal Party. And it may be that when the soldiery vote is counted, the service vote is counted by the end of the week, it may be that the Liberal Party will have a clear majority in the House of Commons, but that is not yet known. Until that is known, it would be very foolish of me, of course, to make any definitive pronouncement at this time, and I do not intend to do so. It is, however, clear that the conservative government of Mr. Diefenbaker has suffered a second drastic defeat in one year. The results that we have now show that 45% uh, of the popular vote went to our party and only about 32% to his party 
12%, I believe, to the Social Credit Party and 11% to the New Democratic Party. So uh, you will have to wait to hear from me when I know what the final result is. And when we decide, when we know what the final result is, then we will, in all our parties, know what to do. And what we will all do, I hope, will be what is best for our country at this time. Effectively taking office on April 22nd, his government got down to work with altering Canada in immense ways despite the minority government. One of the most important achievements of the Pearson government, which consisted of two minority governments from 1963 to 1968, was getting Canada a new flag, keeping the country out of Vietnam, uniting the armed forces into a unified force, creating Medicare, and the de facto abolishment of capital punishment and the creation of the Canadian Pension Plan. By 1965, things were changing in the Liberal Party with Pierre Trudeau rising in prominence and rifts forming with Quebec. In 1967, Pearson announced he was retiring, and a Liberal convention picked Trudeau to be the new leader and new Prime Minister of Canada. This clip comes from December 19, 1967, when he had announced his retirement. Mr. Pearson is not that kind of a man. He does not attribute to himself all those virtues, and therefore he can't appear that way in public. I think if anyone who knows me will agree, I'm not myself a bitter person. I get no pleasure out of political controversy which is not based on issues or principles. I get no pleasure out of parliamentary debate or political debate merely to score partisan points. Indeed, my whole career, my deepest instincts, have been dedicated to the resolution of disputes and to find solutions to difficult problems. After his retirement, he served as the chair of the Commission on International Development and lectured on politics and history at Carleton University. In 1970, he lost his right eye due to a tumor operation, and while writing his three-volume set of memoirs, he passed away on December 27, 1972. Along with the Order of Canada in 1971, Pearson has been honoured extensively in Canada. He was a Canadian Press Newsmaker of the Year nine times. He is a member of the Canadian Peace Hall of Fame. The UN's Pearson Medal of Peace was created in 1979 in his honour. Several buildings, streets, and more are named for him. He's a member of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, and in a survey done in 2000 of the first 20 Prime Ministers, Pearson ranks sixth, and he is considered the greatest Prime Minister since the Second World War. And in my opinion, he's Canada's greatest Prime Minister. Here, Pearson reflects on his life in politics on October 19, 1972, only months before his death. That, that terrible responsibility, taking the buffeting in the public prints that have... That have oh, there were times, I admit... Uh... Uh, when I was in office, when I looked back with some uh, nostalgic longing to the days when I was immune as a civil servant from criticism, but if you go into politics, you, you have to accept this. It's, uh, it's a, not a high price to pay. It's a price to pay for doing what you want to do and what you feel you ought to do. But remember that I went into politics as Secretary of State for External Affairs, and that wasn't a very partisan or controversial post. And I never expected to be anything more. And during that 
10 years when I was Secretary for External Affairs, I had very little, I was very fortunate, very little controversy and very little trouble in the House of Commons. All parties were agreed on the natural, on the lines of our foreign policy and the principles of our foreign policy. And I'm sure some of my colleagues must have thought I had a very enviable portfolio indeed. I didn't take any buffeting then. Notable Deaths On January 2nd, Thomas McGreevy died in Quebec City at the age of 71. Born in that same city on July 29, 1825, he would serve as an MP from 1867 to 1891 and from 1895 to 1896. That gap was because he was expelled from the House of Commons for corruption and spent a year in prison. His greatest impact on Canada was that he was the contractor for the building of the Parliament of Canada buildings. On July 4th, Amor de Cosmos died in Victoria at the age of 71. He was born in Nova Scotia on August 20th, 1825, and after time with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then becoming a prospector during the California Gold Rush, he set up a studio and started taking pictures of miners and their operations. In 1854, he had his name changed from William Alexander Smith to Amor de Cosmos, or Lover of the Universe. In 1858, he moved to Victoria and founded a newspaper, The Daily British Colonist, which is today the Victoria Times Colonist. He served as its editor until 1863, and he would argue passionately for free enterprise, public education, economic and political privileges for all, and responsible government. In 1871, he became a member of the House of Commons, serving from 1872 to 1882. During that time, he also served as an MLA in the British Legislature from 1871 to 1874. And during that same period in the Legislature, he was the second Premier of British Columbia from 1872 to 1874. As Premier, he pushed for the development of schools, economic expansion, and political reform. As Cosmos grew older, people began to notice odd tendencies in his behaviour. He became prone to outbursts of crying and a fierce temper, and had a deep fear of electricity. In 1895, he was declared insane, and as the Klondike Gold Rush began, he set up a company to deliver hot food to prospectors in the gold fields. But the logistics of the service would result in the company failing. On September 19th, Frederick Copay died at the age of 48 in the Yukon. Born on August 27th in 1849 in Canada West, he would come out to British Columbia and served as the third mayor of Vancouver from 1892 to 1893. As mayor, he attempted to limit city expenses, let city employees go to an economic downturn, and he would lose his life while crossing Shallow Lake on his horse. He fell from his horse during the Klondike Gold Rush, and while attempting to rescue his horse, he was pulled away by the current. On October 21st, Philip Little would die at the age of 72 or 73 in England. Born in 1824 in Charlottetown, he became the first Roman Catholic lawyer to practice law in St. John's, Newfoundland. He would lead a charge for responsible government, and in 1855 he was selected as the first Prime Minister of Newfoundland, serving until 1858. He was appointed to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland that year, and served as the Chief Justice until 1868. On December 15th, James Mitchell died at the age of 54. Born in New Brunswick on March 16, 1843, he served as the 8th Premier of New Brunswick from 1896 to 1897 when he resigned due to ill health. And on December 31st, David Oppenheimer would die at the age of 63 in Vancouver. Born in Germany on January 1st, 1834, he came to North America in 1848 and then traveled to California to take advantage of the California Gold Rush in 1851. 
1858, he and his brother took their supply business to Victoria and established stores for prospectors during the Fraser River and Caribou Gold Rushes. During the construction of the CPR through British Columbia, he did extensive business with the company, purchasing land through his syndicate at various places along the route. After the Great Vancouver Fire, he founded the Vancouver Board of Trade and was its chairman. In 1888, he became the second mayor of Vancouver, serving until 1891. During his time as mayor, a ferry would be established to Burr Inlet, a streetcar system began, and water connection to the Capilano River was built. He also set up the first fire department, pushed hard for a city hospital, playgrounds, and parkland, and he was the mayor when Stanley Park opened, and he would also promote the mining industry of the province. I hope you enjoyed that look at Canada in 1897, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Thanks, we'll see you again next time.